I think I just turned myself off before I came up here rather than on, which is really cool. <laughs> thank you for le- uh, reading God's Word for us, Shay Lee and team. Thank you for leading us in music. Uh, church, before we just dive into unpacking the Word of God there that we just heard read, I also want to say thank you uh, to something, sort of add my thank you to something Jordan mentioned earlier last night with the fall festival. Uh, 200 folks coming into this building, a-, a lot of them were us. It was kind of a cool time to connect with uh, families and see some of our young kids all dressed up as like whatever they were dressed up as. It reminds you when you're an old guy like me how old you are and how out of touch with pop culture you are. If you're like, who are you? I'm so-and-so. <laughs> right. Awesome. All I know is you're really cute, so welcome. Um, a lot of fun to just connect, but you know, so many people from just right around our neighborhood also came by, and I was just so proud of the way that we as a church could connect with neighbors. I had one conversation with a neighbor I just met for the first time last night. Uh, Just moved into town a couple months ago, coincidentally from a town in California where my grandparents lived and I spent a lot of time as a kid. So we just start talking, I had a 15 minute conversation with her. And I don't know how long she'll be a neighbor, but you just have an opportunity to connect with people simply because you chose to show up. And I'll not lie, part of my Saturday afternoon was like, do I really want to go? I really just want to stay home, but I just showed up. and I'm so glad I did. So thank you for those of you who showed up to make last night happen. These are significant events in the life of our church. For so many of our teenagers and young adults who helped out, guys, you are awesome. Thank you for what you did to just help the church be the church. Because God has called us to be an outward-facing people. And this is just an opportunity to do that, to see beyond ourselves and love one another, and then see beyond our own congregation and love our neighbors. And speaking of which, we are going to have opportunities to do that coming up in November with our Breadbox ministry, and then also December with some of our Advent giving. You'll hear more about that coming up. Let me just encourage us to continue to be the outward-facing church that reflects the heart of the gospel good time yesterday. And right now we get a chance to dive in to Exodus once again. So God, I come before you now and ask that you would meet us here and that you would help us uh, to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. And it is for our good and your glory we pray this. Amen. Finish the saying for me. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We all know it, right? Um, you, you, you touch a hot stove, you're not going back there again, right? You get burned by somebody, you're not going to open yourself up to that again. We expect to learn from past pain, to wise up and not trust someone a second time who let us down the first time. And to some extent, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that, in navigating relationships. Although, as, as, as wise as that can be, as, as wise a principle as it often is to say, hey, if somebody's kind of burned you or let you down before, maybe you want to be a little more careful next time. The truth is, applying that sometimes can get tricky. For example, what if the person didn't necessarily let you down so much as maybe they just didn't do what you wanted them to do? Or they didn't do it the way you wanted them to do it? Or they didn't do it in the timing that you wanted them to do it in? It gets a little bit tricky to apply this principle to relationships, and this may especially be true of our relationship with God. Uh, God is someone who the Bible presents as infinitely trustworthy, and yet he is also someone who often acts in different ways than we expect, certainly different ways sometimes than we desire, and often in a different timetable than what we would lay before him. 
In such cases, we can sometimes be left feeling burned or let down by God and therefore more hesitant to trust him next time. But if so, that's at our own peril because the Bible says trusting God is the only way we've got any kind of hope. That's, that's the lesson that, that Moses and the Israelites had to learn in Exodus chapters 5 and 6 where we're going to be this morning because God definitely did not meet their expectations in these chapters even though they were trusting him. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to Exodus chapter 5. We pick up the story from where we left off last week. We saw in chapters 3 and 4 that, that uh, Moses had resisted God's call, which is sort of a fancy, sterilized way of saying he sinned. He sinned. He disobeyed God. God said go, and he said no. And, and so God had to deal with him, and we saw all of that last Sunday. But, but chapter 4 ended on a, on a really high note. He, he goes to the Israelites Uh, tells them what God told him to tell them. He performs these miraculous signs that God told him to perform, and they turn out to believe him just like God said they would. And so actually, so far things are going much better than Moses expected. Chapter 4 ends by noting that the people of Israel bowed their heads in worship. (laughs) Ah, we've been crying out to God for rescue, and he's heard us. Yes, (laughs) there's hope, right? They're they're relieved, (laughs) first of all, we, we might get some relief from our, um, our pain and our suffering. They're grateful. God has hurt us. They're hopeful. Maybe our best days are yet still ahead of us because God is going to save us. That's how chapter four ends. So chapter five opens this morning. And here we go, right? Here we go. God is gonna rescue his people. That sounds pretty cool, right? Let's see how that goes. If you get your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 5. Let's just read the first two verses here. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me out in the wilderness. So here it is. The demand for release. God is going to rescue them. But Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh, the proper name of God, that I should listen to his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let them go go. This little exchange sort of typifies everything that comes next. Uh, Things are not going well, not at all well from the perspective of the Israelites. Uh, Moses and Aaron make God's demand, but Pharaoh's response is not just resistance or denial, right? He doesn't just say no, so therefore let's just continue on as things were. He actually pushes back really hard. His his response is, is dripping with disdain. Who is Yahweh? That is not a legit, that's a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> that's not a real question. That's not the, gee, well, who's this Yahweh? Tell me about it. Maybe I should listen to him. No, 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 that's not what's going on here, right? You can tell that, just even from the text. He's sneering in derision. Who is this God of yours that I should obey his voice? In other words, give me a break. It not only is dripping with disdain, his response also denies God's relevance. I don't know this Yahweh. He's basically saying this Yahweh is a meaningless God, small g, of an insignificant people. Why in the world should I listen to you or your God? He's nothing. He's nothing to me. And finally, it asserts Pharaoh's superiority over and authority over God and his people. I absolutely will not let Israel go. And so here it is. The the battle lines are, are drawn. The battle lines are drawn. The clash of titans is about to begin. This 
pitched battle between Pharaoh on the one hand and Yahweh, God, on the other hand, is what's going to dominate the first third of the book of Exodus. And the battle for superiority of those lines are drawn. It takes us all the way through chapter 15. Now, surprisingly, round one of the Clash of Titans goes to Pharaoh. He wins round one. Moses comes out in God's name, throws a jab. Pharaoh dodges and lands a haymaker that knocks Moses square on his rear end. That's how the fight starts. If you drop down to verse 6, we see how the response goes on. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that you shall, uh, you shall that you impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. That is why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words, meaning Moses' words. And so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to them, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, <laughs> demanded, why have you not done all the task of making the bricks uh, today and yesterday as in the past? You see, what's happening here is that the Pharaoh is not just saying no, he's, he's counterpunching. Uh, Moses and Aaron didn't really just like run into a brick wall and fall over. What they ran into was a bulldozer that's now pushing back and, and is determined to knock them down, drive them into the dirt, and bury them. How dare you even suggest an affront to my authority and power? He does it by uh, pushing them even harder, making their work even more toilsome, and having their leaders physically assaulted when the production inevitably falls off. It's, it's abuse. It's physical abuse justified by deep injustice, which is a heinously bitter pill of suffering for the Israelites to swallow. His goal in all this is really clear. The, the way the narrative is put together is actually quite artful. It's very poignant. Uh, he says in verse, he's, he's trying to be their God instead of Yahweh. He says uh, in verse 8, uh, the people of the land are now, made, I'm sorry, down in verse 8. Um, the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall still impose on them, for they are idle. Therefore, that is why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So here it is, let heavier work be laid on them. What he's saying is, I'm going to use my authority as a, as a battering ram to literally drive any thought of your Yahweh God out of your stupid little heads. Your God wants you to go serve him. No, 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 no. You stay and serve me. I will be your God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you so burdened with labor that you can no longer dream dreams about following your God. He was seeking to steal their hearts away from Yahweh. And it's important to note that God's people throughout history, right up until now and today, have always been locked in a battle, the Bible says, for our hearts, our minds, and our affections. That's what's playing out in the pages here. But this was not unique just to the ancient Israelites. 
The world will constantly seek to fill our lives with experiences that leave no more room to dream big dreams of God and what he has in store for us, to, to yearn for our eternal home or to have our hearts captivated by Christ and what he's doing in the world right now and the depth of his love for you and I. These are the greatest, most life-giving, heart-warming realities in the universe, but it takes effort and energy to focus on them and learn about them and concentrate on them and interact with them, and then our hearts respond to them. But the Bible says the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sort of an unholy trinity of God's enemies, are always seeking to fill up our lives with other things. Sometimes that comes in a positive form and, a, and other times a negative form. And the positive form, it can come through, through pleasant and comfortable things, you know? Like where life just gets so busy doing stuff, good stuff, happy stuff, that, man, I, just, I don't have any capacity or time left over to, to regularly assemble with God's people or, or attend my community life groups or, or spend time alone in prayer with God. It just gets crowded out with so much other stuff. And, and it's good stuff, but we're just so scheduled to the max. We don't have any room left to dream big dreams of God. But it also happens on the negative side. It's not always a pleasant thing. Sometimes through hard things, when, like when pain and grief just threaten to leave people completely jaded. I've hoped in God, I've trusted in God, and yet I've been hammered, and grief is now real. And for so many of us, we feel like we can barely survive the day. If I just make it to the end of this week, that's gonna be a major victory. That is all I can think about right now because of what I'm going through. Therefore, I have no, I got no room left. I got no capacity left to read or sing or pray or chase God's dreams. Of course, it's a lie. In those moments, I need to read and pray and sing and chase God's dreams more than ever. But it's one that we all feel. I think if we're all honest, every Christian could say that. I've been in those times. And that's what Pharaoh purposely sought to make the Israelites feel as a means of controlling and possessing their hearts for himself. He was seeking to be their God. Unfortunately, it appears to have worked. Pick up the narrative in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people went out and said, sorry, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is with your own people. They're appealing against the injustice. But Pharaoh responded, you are idle, he repeats it, you are idle. That's why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. So no, go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. We're worse off now than we were before, in other words. So verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from meeting with Pharaoh and they said to Moses and Aaron, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. If you're Moses, this is not going well. I mean, this is awful. This is about as bad far off the rails as you could have imagined this thing going. Not only has Pharaoh mocked you and sent you packing in humiliation, but he so hammered the people that they are now no longer going to follow you. So what have you got left? The interesting thing here is that 
the people in this passage appeal to the Pharaoh, which is, which is a change. This is a, a deliberate part of the narrative flow here of Exodus up to this point. You know, earlier, back in chapter 2, they, they appealed to God. They cried out to God because of their suffering, and God heard them with compassion. Chapter 2, verse 23, the Lord heard them, and he remembered their covenant, and so he was going to go rescue them. Now, here in chapter 5, they appeal to Pharaoh, and he rejects them with derision. Pharaoh demands that they go back to work. God says, come serve me. He says, stay, serve me. I will be your God. You see, one master hates them. The other one loves them. That's the point. But that's not what they're seeing because they're in the middle of the pain. Because they're in the middle of the pain. Can you relate? It's very easy to say, like, I'm not aware that I'm I'm a Christian. I'm not doing anything horrifically wrong here so far as I know. I'm probably far from perfect, but man, I'm trying to live life well. And I think I'm being faithful to what God wants me to do. And everything, every time I make a, a, a decision that I think is obedience to God or a commitment that I think is faith to God, the next shoe drops, you know? Have you ever felt that? Things actually get worse. You know, it's, I had my kids, and, and I wanted to do my best to be a godly mom, a godly dad. So, you know, we, we really believed if we raised up our children in the way they should go, when they were old, they wouldn't depart from it. And, and so we took that as a promise, and we did our best to raise our kids, and then our kids grow up, and, and maybe they want nothing to do with God. Or maybe they're making a series of choices that are utterly destroying their own lives and our hearts as parents just break. Or maybe both, and we're like, God, I... What do you do with that? It can take a hundred forms. I'm trusting God, but, but then a loved one dies. A marriage falls apart. A diagnosis comes. Our financial bottom drops out from under us. Whatever it is. What do you do with that? I mean, there's nothing like getting your hopes up and then seeing your expectations go unmet to kill trust. God comes and says, trust me. You're like, fool me once. I've tried this. I'm not sure it's working. What does God say to his people in such a time as this? That's what this passage is about, but we're going to have to read just a little bit further before we get there. Because the climax of the passage actually comes next. The people have appealed to Pharaoh, been rejected. They've now rejected Moses and Aaron. And the climax is, what is Moses going to do? What's Moses going to do? Verse 22. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's his response from a human point of view, can you blame him? He's shocked that God's rescue has been anything but a rescue. They're actually more in need of rescue now than they were before. God's promise to make everything better has actually made it worse. How do you spin that any other way? That's what he's thinking. He's exasperated, and he accuses God three times of failure He says, God, you've done them evil. The idea is destruction, calamity. You've made their lives worse, in other words, when you promised to make it better. So you've not done what you said you would do. He says, why did you send me? Why did you even 
call me here. By the way, didn't I spend all of chapter 3 telling you this was a bad idea? (laughs) There's a little bit of not so subtle, I told you so, mixed into that. And and, and finally, he concludes, it's just a flat declaration. You have not rescued your people at all. And so here is our hero (laughs) and his faith falters. And notice how God's reply to Moses begins. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now we're finally at God speaking into this mess. What is God going to say? Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Oh, Moses, not only are the people still going to get out of here, the Pharaoh who's not letting them go is going to practically throw them out by the time I'm done with him. Moses essentially tells God, God, you haven't done what you said you were going to do. And God replies, oh, I'm just getting started. Well, okay. But in the meantime, your people are suffering. Yes, I know. I know. That's part of the deal. But I haven't failed to keep my promise yet. I'm, I'm just getting started. You see, what's, what's happening here is that Moses knew God's promise. I'm going to rescue the people. That was clear. But he presumed the when and the how of that rescue. You see, God had promised to bring them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. That much is true. But Moses assumed that the line between those two points was going to start immediately, run straight, and hopefully be fairly short. (laughs) We're in slavery. You rescue. We're home free. Sounds good to me. Let's get to the rescue thing. Let's get on with it. God tells Moses, I am going to rescue, but the line between slavery in Egypt and freedom in the promised land is going to be none of those things. It's not going to start immediately. It's going to start only after a protracted and caustic debate. It will not be a straight line. It will meander purposely at times, and it will not be short. It's going to be a long and a hard road. Oh, don't get me wrong, Moses. It leads to the promised land. Those of my people who follow me faithfully will get there and rejoice when they do but it's going to be a different journey than you think. You see, what God is doing here is he's widening Moses' view. He, he, I think, somewhat patiently challenges Moses' assumptions about how God must go about keeping his promises. Moses' discouragement indicates that he really did have specific expectations of of what he wanted God to do. When those expectations went unmet, well, then he's, he's fallen apart in discouragement. Yet he didn't really want God. He wanted what God could give. He and the people of Israel wanted the gift, not so much the giver. God, if you're going to show up and rescue us, awesome, we'll take the rescue. But following you and knowing you through a hard process, wait a second, I'm not sure that that's of any help to me. I'm not sure I want to know you. I want out. If I can get to you later, fine, but right now I just need out. I don't need you, I need rescue. How many times... We chase after what we want God to give us, to free us from, to provide for us, rather than chasing God himself. My bent is a human being all the time. That's my default setting. That's my default setting. But you see, God is not a vending machine. That's the point. 
Even when he promises rescue, he's not somebody whose buttons you can push and then get the goodie out of it. I'll get out, I'll trust you and do what you want. That's like pushing the button and out comes the snack that I wanted. I get what I need. God doesn't work like a vending machine, even though at times I want him to be. That's why God reframes Moses' perspective. And that leads us to the real heart of this passage, verses two through eight. This is a dense discourse from God. He says, here's the answer, Moses. Here's how I'm now gonna speak into the catastrophe that you and my people are experiencing. Between these two, it's bookended with two statements in verse two and eight. I am Yahweh. That's my name, he says in verse two. He ends the same thing at the end of verse eight. I am Yahweh. Between those two, he gives us 16 statements about who he is and what he will do, all of which is a way of explaining what the name Yahweh means. What does it mean that the Lord's will, or that the Lord's name is Yahweh? God says, here's my answer. You need to know who I am. You need to know who I am. Am. That's what the word Yahweh means. I am. That's my name. God says, what does that mean? In these next verses, he gives us several examples. First of all, it means that he is faithful to keep his promises. Verse 4, he says, I established my covenant with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. I remember that. I'm still going to follow through on that promise. That's what it means that my name is Yahweh. It also means that he is empathetic and he is compassionate toward his people. This is not just a business transaction for God. Verse 5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered my covenant. I've heard them. I've cared. What kind of treatment did you just get from your Pharaoh overlord? That is not the kind of treatment you get from me, though I am the sovereign of the universe. I hear, I know, I care. That's what God's people can count on when they come to God in anguish. Verse six, he promises rescue. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He says, I will rescue you. That's what it means that my name is Yahweh. I'm the one who rescues. Verse seven, he says, I will enter into a personal and intimate relationship with you as my people and your God. Verse seven, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. God says, I'm not just looking for a slave labor force like Pharaoh. I'm not just looking for minions to offer sacrifices to me. I'm looking for a people. I'm looking for a family. I will be to you not only as a sovereign king, but a saving God and a loving father. You will be to me not only worshipers, but you will be to me sons and daughters. That's what it means that I'm Yahweh God. And last but not least, he will lead them to the promised land. Verse eight, I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. 
quite the discourse. An Old Testament scholar named Alec Mateer puts it this way. These verses tell us that God keeps his word, feels our pain, sets us free, brings us close to himself, and that he will eventually lead us home. Faithfulness, empathy, deliverance, intimacy, and inheritance are all embraced by the phrase, I am Yahweh. So Moses, look at me. Look at me. Do you understand who I am? Will you respond to who I am? Not to your preconceived notions of how straight the line to the promised land is going to be. This is all about what God will do. In seven verses, we get 16 statements. I am this, I will this, about who God is and what he will do. This is all about God and all about what he will do for his people. You know, as the Old Testament unfolds beyond the book of Exodus, uh, something we've mentioned throughout this series is that, that this book is a foundational one for the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Old Testament repeatedly goes back to these promises, uh, describing how they will be fully and finally fulfilled when God sends a Savior, a Messiah, to be the ultimate Savior who will deliver his people in Exodus terms from their slavery to sin and death. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the Bible demonstrates that Jesus is that long-promised Messiah. Describing the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection in terms that are cast by Exodus. Just a couple of brief examples. Uh, the empathy that God promises to show his people here. How many times does the New Testament note that Jesus was moved with compassion by the crowds? Probably the best-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, says that God sent his own son to die for our sins because he what is it? Loved the world, for God so loved the world that God is not an overlord or a taskmaster. He is a compassionate Savior. Deliverance, freedom from slavery. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from this evil present age. The language comes right out of Exodus. Relationship. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says, you know, we who follow Jesus are not given a spirit of fear that we might fall back into slavery. We don't just look at God and we'd be afraid of him, but rather we're given a spirit of adoption. He uses family language. To be a Christian is to be adopted by God, not only forgiven of sin, certainly that, but therefore, because I'm forgiven of sin, adopted as a daughter, adopted as a son, where God is our loving father the inheritance of the promised land. A couple verses later in Romans, it says, if we are sons and daughters, then we are also heirs. In fact, Romans 8, 18 says, the sufferings of this present age aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us if we have followed Christ faithfully to the end. The inheritance is real and it's coming. You see, the line from here to heaven is not straight, nor is it particularly short from our point of view. Just like the line for the Israelites to the promised land was neither straight nor short. But, but God promises, promises that from the perspective of eternity looking back, it will have been worth it a thousand times over and more 
whatever wilderness journey I have to go through here on this earth to get there. That's the promise of God. And he says, will you look at me (laughs) and trust me to keep that promise? That's how he instructs us to hold on to him in the meantime, in the midst of pain and discouragement. To look at God, empathetic, faithful, relational, deliverer, and we see that no more, nowhere more clearly than in Jesus Christ. This is a call for us to put our faith and trust in him to carry us ultimately home. So how does that kind of a call strike somebody when they're in the midst of chaos and pain? How did it strike the Israelites when God said, trust me, I will deliver you? Well, as much as it would be great if this was a wonderful turning point where from this point on everything went fine, that would be a wonderful story, but that's not quite how the story ends. Chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke all this to the people. He told them everything God told them to say, and what was their response? But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They were jaded. They were done. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going there again with you, Moses. We did this trust God to deliver us from slavery thing once, and it got worse. I'm out. I'm done. You see, pain tends to either drive us closer to God in greater desperation where we get to know him even more intimately or drive us further away from God in jaded rejection. But God still tells Moses to be faithful. Our passage this morning ends in verses 10 to 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let my people go. Wait, 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 what? We just tried that. God, that worked horribly. Round one went to Pharaoh. I got my jaw dislocated, and my rear end still hurts from how hard I landed on it. He's like, ding, round two, go. And so Moses, predictably, I think, you know, from a human point of view, understandably, says, well, uh, in verse nine, behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I um, am am of uncircumcised lips. He's like, God, I... I lost. The, I have even less now going into round two than I had in round one. I don't even have a following anymore. God's response at this point is fascinating because of how little is there. Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, I know. That's what this whole story has been about from day one. Yeah, and that's what God told him to do. In other words, when Moses doubts because the Israelites are unmoved, because of their pain, so then because of his pain he doubts, God simply says, go. Go. Act, Moses. I mean, he doesn't tell Moses to get a grip and buck up. He doesn't give Moses a pep talk. Like, there's nothing more to say. Moses, I just told you what you need to know. The only issue now is, are you going to act or not? So, go. He simply points back to his self-revelation, tells him to move forward in faith. Because that's how to sustain faith and trust in God when life is blowing up. It's to look at him and to own the promises of who he is and then simply choose to act in faith and follow him. What would that look like for you and I today? 
let's, as we kind of land this plane here for this morning, let's be very, very practical and hands-on. It's one thing to say, even in hard times, trust God. That's true, but, but what, might that, what does that mean? What might that look like? Well, friends, if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whereby you've like, repented of sin in prayer at some point in your life and confessed that to Jesus and, and, and trusted that, that his death on the cross was, was in your place, paying the just penalty for your sins, then trusting God when life blows up would mean, well, the Bible calls it repenting, embracing Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. We'd love a chance to talk with you about what that means or how that looks. If there's a Christian you came to church with, I encourage you to have that conversation with them. If you'd like to talk to myself, one of our church leaders after the service, we would love to do that. God doesn't just randomly bless people. He calls us to become his children to receive his blessings and that is through repentance and faith in Christ. Now, what if you're, what if you're already a Christian? But like the Israelites, I'm still saying, well, I, I do trust God, I do love Jesus, and I'm trying my hardest to follow after him, but life is still blowing up. What do I do now? What does trust God, keep, keep trusting God? What, like, what, does that, what does that look like? It could look a lot of ways. But I want to close with a pattern that um, author and pastor John Piper lays out for how to do this in a very practical way. He uses an acronym that's uh, pretty widely available on the internet. You can just Google this if you want and read a lot more about it. Um, Admit, pray, trust, act, thank. Piper really helpfully says, so the word is aptat, which is actually not a word, but maybe that's what helps you remember it, right? (laughs) But five simple steps. It's a memory tool. So this is like how to how to walk by faith, how to walk in the Spirit in any circumstance. This is the process he takes himself through, so he commends it to others. It's helpful as a way to just break down what this might look like. Let me just briefly walk through this. Just one example. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm facing a repeated area of sin. Who knows what it is? Greed. Anger. Looking at internet porn late at night when nobody's watching. Whatever the thing is. I know this is sin. I'm a Christian. I don't want to give into it again. What does it look like to continue to trust God when my life is blowing up or when sin is having victory? For following Piper's advice, we'd start with admitting in prayer to God, I am not able to whip this sin on my own. Like, when's the last time I just opened up my mouth in prayer and said, God, I can't do this without you? It's got to start from a place of brokenness. Secondly, we pray. So God, give me the grace and strength needed to flee from this temptation, to deny it. You know, whatever the situation is, we're, we're inviting God's strength and power into our lives because we know we need it. Thirdly, trust. Trust in a specific promise. Uh, this particular version of this is kind of economized on words, but when he says trust in his promises, the idea there is that that's not vague, you know. Like, okay, Trust God's promises. Again, that, that sounds great. It sounds like the kind of thing you're supposed to hear in church, but what, what promises? What am I actually trusting in? I, I, I don't have a guarantee that God's going to give me a straight line, so what am I trusting? Fortunately, the Bible's full of promises, some of which probably pertain to our situation. If I'm battling this kind of repetitive sin, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 comes to mind. The Bible tell us, tells us there that we, we don't have a high priest an interceder, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. 
So when I'm asking Jesus for help in uh, a struggle against sin, like he gets it. (laughs) He understands that. Furthermore, it then goes on to say, verse 16, therefore let us with confidence boldly approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace, what a beautiful term. God's authority in his throne, but it's full of grace and forgiveness. So that, now here's the promise, so that we may find grace to help in time of need. I've got a need. (laughs) I need grace. You know what? Right there in the Bible, black and white, Hebrews 4.16, Jesus promises to give me the grace that I need if I come to him trusting him for it. That's a that's a promise. That's not a maybe, it's not a whole. That's like God says, I will do this. I will give you this grace. And so I've admitted I can't do it on my own. I've prayed for God's help. Now I, maybe I read that verse. I say, God, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm trusting somehow you're going to come through because this is who you are. <laughs> this is who you are. The throne you sit on is a throne of grace. Boy, do I need it. Fourthly, Piper says, you act. Um, you act. Do the next thing. Say, what's the next thing? I don't know. Whatever the next thing is. Depends on the circumstance. Man, if I'm, if I'm battling late night internet porn, I, maybe the next thing is just, I'm just going to turn off the computer and walk away. And, and 30 seconds later, it may be calling my name again. But right now, you know what? I'm not going to worry about being obedient for the entire rest of my life. I'm going to worry about being obedient right now. This next step, Act trusting that God is going to give me the grace that I need because that's his promise. That's his promise. Maybe it means calling that friend that I know I should be talking to because they're a trusted Christian brother or sister and I know I could be real with them but I'm just too embarrassed to tell them what sin is really going on in my life and so I keep finding excuses not to do it. Just act, like do it. Make the phone call. Have the coffee appointment. Bring it up at the next small group meeting and say, hey, I need you guys to pray for me in this. Whatever the next step is, like you, you, you do it. You do it. And lastly, but not least, you thank God. Thank him. God, thank you. If there was 10 seconds of my life when I could have sinned and I didn't, that was your grace. Thank you. Thank you. It's a simple process. And then you do it over and over and over again until you're almost nauseated with it. And it becomes the glorious way to trust God when all hell is breaking loose in my life because I know what his promises are. By the way, helping one another find those promises in scripture is one of the best ways we can help encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But you're like, man, I need God's help and I have no idea what promises in the Bible are there. Wonderful. Ask a Christian brother or sister. Do some Bible study. They're in there. Man, they're in there. To know those promises and walk with each other as we trust them. You see, when the Israelites trusted God and had the bottom drop out, And in the chaos, they said, God, I'm not going to trust you anymore. He said, you don't need to understand what my plan is or how it's going to work. You'll find that out as you go. That's not important. What you really need to understand is who you're talking to. Can you trust me to believe that I am who I am? Because that's how we stay faithful to God and trust him when life blows up. I'm going to ask our music ministry team to come back up here and lead us to close our service in musical worship. And as they're coming up, we're actually going to also worship by coming to the communion table this morning. Jesus said to regularly 
um, remember him in this act of communion. Our custom here at Harvest is to do that twice a month, including this morning. And so what communion is, is a simple act. It's a symbolic act. We eat bread and we drink from a cup, and that represents, the Bible says, the body and the blood of Jesus. The act is simple. The meaning is very clear. When we, when we take communion in church like this, we're doing two things. First of all, we are announcing that we're Christians. Uh, Jesus, uh, the Bible says that, that every time we, we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, eating this bread and drinking this cup is to announce Jesus is my Savior and my sins are forgiven only because of him. And so what that means is if you're here with us this morning and you haven't made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then in a few moments when people are kind of moving toward communion tables, we encourage you just to stay in your seats. That's totally fine. People are kind of doing their thing and that's totally normal here. To take communion is to announce that we are banking our lives in the body and blood of Jesus. Secondly, it's to announce that we are one church. That we are one church. 1 Corinthians 10 says, because there is one bread, we who partake of it are one body because we all partake of the same bread. There's something together about this communion experience that says, not only am I personally a Christian, but we are the family of God here taking this together. So definitely, if you're a member of our church, we encourage you to partake in communion with that in mind. If you're visiting us, maybe you're a Christian, you belong to another church that proclaims the same gospel. You've heard here this morning, then we just encourage you to come and partake with us because we're part of the same family of God. So how this is gonna work is we've got some tables up here front. There's a couple in the back and they're up in the balcony as well. We're gonna have some music playing here in just a moment just to create um, a time of reflection, just quiet. We ask you to just stay seated and maybe think, maybe pray silently. Just ask God to reveal himself to you. Whatever you're hearing in response to maybe his word this morning or whatever else he's doing in your life, just take a few seconds to think, to pray, confess sin if that's what he leads you to, express your trust in him, whatever it is. And then after a brief time, Claire will have us stand and invite us to the communion tables and we'll begin singing. And at that point, you can go to any of the communion tables at any point. Um, You can wait a little while and go later. There's no rush. We're gonna close our service with three songs that exalt the greatness of God, talk about the sweetness of trusting him in all things and commit to live for him. Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself to us this morning. And my words have been so weak and feeble in my own ears, but in the hearts of your people, your words are strong. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that you would drive your words into our hearts. And that as we meet you now in in quiet moments, as we meet you here at the communion table, as we meet you perhaps by confessing our sins and repenting for the very first time, I pray that you would show us your greatness, that you would show us your compassionate care for everything going on in our lives, that you would help us to see you as the faithful promise keeper who will interact with us as sons and daughters if we come to you through Christ and who will ultimately lead us home. Make yourself so much bigger in our hearts and minds so that everything else becomes smaller in comparison. For our good and your glory, we pray these things. Amen.